I'm Minka Makalani, and you're listening to Black Thought Me. Ever find yourself at a party, hanging out with some friends, and after a few drinks, someone gets all deep and says something way out there like, the Black Panthers were just a gang with a 10-point program. And everyone gets upset and starts arguing about Black power in the 60s. And before you know it, you've talked about everything from aesthetics and political leadership to the miseducation of Lauryn Hill and how Republicans stole the election from Stacey Abrams. And the next day, it occurs to you, All things considered, this was one of the better conversations you've had in a while. Well, on Black Thought Neat, rather than talk to someone about their new book or work of art, I bring together artists, intellectuals, and activists to have a few drinks and talk about nothing in particular and everything under the sun. Take hip-hop, for example. For anyone who grew up on the music or who has a deep love for the culture, there's a song that takes you back to the exact moment when you first heard it, what you were doing, and who you were with. And easily the best era is hip-hop's golden age. Some of the best music from the 90s came from artists influenced by the speeches and iconography of Malcolm X, the teachings of the Nation of Islam, and the theology of the NOI offshoot, the 5% Nation of Gods and Herbs. Black Muslims were hardly new to black political thought, but Noble Drew Ali's More Science Temple never had a soundtrack like this. Turn on a hip-hop radio show in the early 90s and you couldn't get three tracks in without a 5%er on the mic. From MCs like Rakim and Nas to groups like Brand Nubian and Poor Righteous Teachers, 5%ers shaped a culture and provided a view that, for better or worse, questioned political norms, stressed intellect, and persistently attacked what they considered mental slavery. The notion that the black man is God is esoteric as hell. But it appealed to a generation that suffered from the racial retrenchment of the 70s and 80s, the Reagan era, HIV AIDS, and crack. It also led to a lot of great music. If the cypher is where 5%ers build, in the 90s, albums and CDs were cyphers with a national distribution network that could reach and civilize 85ers globally. In this episode of Black Thought Meet, I was having drinks one evening at the annual meeting of the Association for the Study of African American Life and History. ASALA is the oldest black studies professional organization in the country, and every year it brings together some of the most brilliant people I know to share their work and ideas. And as is often the case, some of the most interesting conversations happen at the bar. This particular evening, I was throwing a few back with three historians who are also real cool dudes. The first voice you hear is Derek Musgrove, an associate professor of history at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and the author of Chocolate City, a history of race and democracy in the nation's capital. The second voice is Russell Rickford, an associate professor of history at Cornell University who wrote the award-winning book, We Are an African People, Independent Education, Black Power, and the Radical Imagination. And chiming in briefly is Brandon Byrd, an assistant professor of history at Vanderbilt University, whose first book, The Black Republic, African Americans, Haiti, and the Rise of Radical Black Internationalism, drops later this year. Derek, Russ, and Brandon all agreed to let me pull out the recorder and capture our conversation. And things just flowed from there. Enjoy. It's funny though, I went to go see, uh, it's a guilty pleasure on my birthday, that night school with Kevin Hart. I hear it's pretty good. No. It was was so bad. But I knew it was going in. I'm like, all right. You're like, I'm just going to enjoy this. Because it's a free movie on your birthday at this one spot in Austin. Guilty pleasure bad or bad bad? It was bad bad. 
But <laughs> I laughed because I knew going in I wasn't getting anything right. redeemable. And so this guy, he was the brother who was in Leeds, Falco or something like that. He was like the cat, an undergrad, who had the chew sticks, who would be like, I swear. Nah, sister, you don't understand. <laughs> These Europeans got you menstruating. <laughs> you gotta get back to some natural oils, because Africans don't do that. Right, right. <laughs> Right. There's a whole list of shit that Africans don't do, man. I know. It's like prohibitions on Yeah. African don't, Africans don't be gay. No, no. No. But no, he was like, yeah, as we say in the 3.5% nation. <laughs> like, it, it went over everybody in the theater's head. I was dying. I was like, 3.5%. Yeah, that was an offshoot, man. There was some beef. This wasn't Clarence 13 X. This was Gerald 45 XL. XL. So it was like it was funny for that kind of stuff. But. I mean, honestly, be some part of why I'm just doing I'm working on that stuff is because it's hysterical. No, it is like, hysterical. I just get to have a fun time in the archives. Absolutely. Oh, you know? Do you teach it? You know, the next book projects is on that. It's oh, on, it is? It's on, oh, it's from, right. it's on Black yeah. Power Politics in the 80s and 90s. I mean, there's a couple of books out there, but it's mostly gonzo journalism on the 5% nation. Right. Right? Like, there needs to be some serious shit about, like, the 5%ers influence on, like, hip-hop culture. You know? You know like, I mean? like it, and on and on and on. Right? And like, hip-hop you know? culture and et cetera. I'm a secularist, right? I know nothing about religion. But if I was to become, like, a, a card-carrying 5%er, right? I basically know their entire, you know what I'm saying, cosmology. Yeah. You know, yeah. like. All I, from PRT. All from PRT, man. All from PRT. Brand Nubian? I can I mean, recite like, the. Like the, Rakim Allah? I can recite the knowledge. I can recite the, you know, mm-hmm. principles. Master Ace? Yeah. I gotta say, so I taught this hip hop class three different summers, mm-hmm. and I would get a lot of athletes. And these are like some of the blackest classes I had. Yeah. The best part was two days talking about the five percenters. Is that right? They have no clue who it is. They're wow. Like, What's the five percent? Like, right. Yeah, know the nation of Islam. Yeah. What's the nation of Islam? Like this. Wow. Clueless. Wow. In terms of wait, wait. System. What's the nation of Islam? They don't know. And they're, but they're eighteen and nineteen years old, right? Like. Sophomores. That's a little crazy though. Like, I mean, like that, even that, at 18, like, that's a little crazy. Honestly, I, yeah. In the classroom, there's nothing that I assume at this point mm-hmm. that they know. Because I've learned. Yeah. I've learned. But like real talk, right? Like that's what I think is so special about the time in which we came of age, which is that there was this moment where like we were seeking out knowledge itself quotes <laughs> right right <laughs> we were seeking out like a way to save ourselves from the urban crisis and the reagan revolution we were trying to figure out what our parents had done wrong and like what we could do extra that would get us over the hump that's right you know it had all types of foolishness built into it sure. but it gave us that shared language which right. we all put to a beat and it was funky as a motherfucker. Like it was, it was brand newbie, and it was KRS One. As crazy as some of the shit that we did was, there was like a real effort on our part to try and find our own voice as African Americans, like outside of Babylon. And we did a lot of dumb shit. Yeah. But like the quest, the effort. Yeah. Right. I think forced us to like really reckon with our history in ways that millennials 
I haven't done it in the same way. Like they've done it in their own way, right? With yeah. BLM and everything. But there was just a language and a culture that we were able to build up. You know, you probably heard me say this before, but yeah, I'm gonna spit that out when you get some shade. Yeah, I'm gonna right. speak like growing up black in America, you need a basic black nationalist orientation in order to establish a kind of baseline of oppositional consciousness, mm -hmm. you know? And I mean, I don't want to be condescending. Like, I feel like I came into that consciousness through high school and I went to college and developed it and I feel like it evolved. So that's what I'm saying. I don't want to be condescending like, you know, I went beyond that or whatever. Whereas if you come of age politically and Obama's president, what you does that mean? Because, you know, the, the nation was talking like real small black business capitalism, right? right. And they were pro-capitalist, right. but they forced you to ask the question, what happens to your dollar? Right. <laughs> when you spend it at a white store. They didn't have an answer, but they were like, you need to give it to another black person. That right. basic concept. Yeah. Right? And black nationalism was never enough, right. but it was a remarkable starting point. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you know? you yeah, now you're thinking about concepts of exchange. You have to like, think about political economy, how right? Economy works. Yeah, you know, exactly. Because it's like some other stuff involved in that, too. Because you always had the community bookstore. And I remember going to, I think it was called ASCAC. That's a regrettable Study. acronym, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't the did think about that. That's what they had, though. <laughs> <We're> like <Africans laughs> We did the best we could. <laughs> For what we had. Ask It was yeah. like African. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I was like the study of classical African civilization. So okay. Yeah, okay. I all right. what it meant. But all right. All right. <laughs> how, how it worked. But um, it's like, we have to let it go. I, <laughs> it's already done. The sign is painted. <laughs> it's like, sign is painted. We got to deal with it. It's like the, the, the conversation <laughs> in the meeting after they done made the sign. It's like, it's the how can we make this work conversation. Uh, you know, you could have just changed the civilization of school around. Put an accent on it. I know. You know. <laughs> but no, so they were like, oh, you got to read Chancellor Williams. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was just having this conversation about Chancellor Williams, man. Yeah. This is last night I was talking about this. But it's like, you know, you're reading that and... I was like 19. I didn't really know what I was reading. I couldn't make it to of it. But I remember thinking, this cat knows a hell of a lot. Right. And I got to understand this to be yes. able to have a conversation yeah. with this. Yeah. They were also selling Farrakhan speeches and Malcolm speeches. Mm -hmm. So it's like this community. Or just playing them out yeah. the front door. Yeah. So you just go and you get all of that stuff and you have to figure it out. Right. So I think there are a number of analogies, right, we can draw to maybe certain late 60s, perhaps early 70s moments. But I feel like one of the connections might be the sense that there was a body of knowledge and it was out there. And the only thing standing between us and our liberation was the mass ingestion. Was the mastery of that body. The mastery of this right. canon. Right. Yeah. And it was Chancellor Williams, it was George James Stolen Legacy. It was Yvonne Von Sergamon. Yeah. Absolutely. My favorite book in high school was They Came Before Columbus. And all I could think was, this Negro studied seed transfers. <laughs> I didn't even know that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, like, this Negro understands how you build a raft out of, like, papyrus reeds. <laughs> that, could, that could handle a transatlantic crossing. I was like, that's 
absurd. Yeah. Like the cross-disciplinary knowledge right. to yeah. write this book, right. independent of whether you buy his thesis, was just remarkable. Right. And so it was like just coming to terms with how I felt about that body of knowledge. That's right. Whether I agreed with the message to the black man or not was the impetus for my growth as like a budding historian of African-American history, right? That's and, right. And of course, what I came to is that I disagreed with a lot right. of what these cats were saying. But the questions they were asking were so important. Yeah. yeah. But it, it also, it forced you, like it was something inherent, particularly when everyone was like, you need knowledge yourself. Right. Which on one hand was like this backhanded way of dismissing you if you disagree yes. with what right. was saying. Yes. But right, you lack knowledge yourself. Yeah, yes. right. you need knowledge yourself, right? Yeah. You don't you know it was like always a serene cat. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's never gonna yeah. raise a hand to anybody. He's like, right. Yeah, you're not conscious, brother. Yeah. 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 But it was almost it forced you to say, either I'm not gonna get involved in these conversations or I'm gonna read and get involved in these conversations. Yes. But then you'd read the stuff. And it was like, you know, some stuff could be appealing for 18, 19 years old or in high school or something mm-hmm. like that. Because yeah. there's a certain appeal to you in a conversation and a cat is like, brother, you know, what color is the pool table? <laughs> green, like, green like the earth? And yeah. <laughs> how do you win the game? Kill the black balls. <laughs> you, have kill, you have to kill all the colors, but then you win by killing the black what color, what color do you kill the black ball with? The white balls. <laughs> think about that. Think about that. Now think about that. Yeah. Yes, sir. And this shit is like It's irrefutable, man. But it's, it's attractive. Irre- well, right? how, do you go, how do you come back to that? You can't. You don't. It's like, you just ingest yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, it's like, what's my man, Charles Mills? He was like, yeah, conspiracy theories, they all have some off elements about it. Right. But mugs aren't trying to explain fucked up shit by saying, oh, this is God's plan. Right. They're like, this devil over here is responsible for my shit. Right. right. <laughs> this blonde haired blue-eyed devil yeah. did this to me. Yes. And he's doing this to you and we right. gotta stop him. Yes. That's and right. it's like, that's, you know, you have to pull through that shit, but at the root of it, right, yeah. is why are black folks in the state that they're in? Yeah. Right. At the root of it is the question. And all of us are trying to answer that question now. Yeah. The difference is that we're actually taking data and trying to figure out the details yeah. of the situation. Whereas when we were reading Francis Crest Wilson or just like hearing right. it in Boomerang, right? Yeah. We were like, <laughs> we were just like, let's just let's just really quickly dash off a conspiracy to answer a very complex question. Right. Right. But there is something so valuable in answering the question as a conspiracy theory or not, sure. right? And I think all of us started there and then kept asking when the answers presented by Francis Cress Welsing, among others, Proof became unsatisfactory. Right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But it's different versions of the same question, though. Yeah. And that's no, powerful. Look, it has taken me, I don't know how many years, to come to terms with the idea that it was not simply the mastery of a particular, perhaps esoteric, perhaps mm. somehow hidden body of knowledge that was really the obstacle to black liberation. Right. Yeah. You know, that's really not about mastering the the, the commission mystery school. <laughs> you know. It was, it was straight money and power. Yeah. I was trying to read hieroglyphics. Right, right, right. It wasn't, you know, there was no... And I mean, you know, now, 
I can even historicize that a little bit. And some of us literally went to Egypt with Anthony Browder <laughs> before we realized that okay. that was not it, the it answer. Kind of, you know so what I'm saying? Mean, look, I like went, literally, we're on the Nile with Anthony Browder listen, before I, we figured man, it out. Hey, look, right? I went to Howard, man. Every program that we threw at Howard, Anthony Browder was the keynote speaker. Yes. Everyone, man. Oh, wow. Every yes. single wow. one. Right. I remember this, uh, Ross Baraka and Kevin Powell did this collection of black poets. And I kept seeing KMT, KMT. Yeah. Hmm. I was like, these guys talking about Kevin? <laughs> 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 and I, and then, I didn't realize it until I met Fanon and Obona. And I was like, they actually had a fraternity uh, name. Yes, sir. Like and, bald head black oh, fatigues, man. Yep. Yeah. But I was like, the, the wildest thing but that's kind of a sign of the time yeah. matter of fact all y'all can be in it if you just change your clothes <laughs> get us uh, shut up Derek <laughs> get us a box, box of life the key yeah. of life or whatever I used to I, walk around campus with one of those I did a did. trip to Egypt in 1995 man and I got like the little 24 karat gold ankh and you can put whatever in it I put my name in it I got an AKA ankh from my sister and I was like, oh. I was like, I'm protecting her, you know, like, yeah, right. Yeah, right. like I'm, I'm creating magic around my yes. sister, you know, and myself, right? But it was like, I really do think though, not not to beat a dead horse, that like going through that process and saying something that was like demonstrably dumb, yeah. right? Like culture can change the world, forced me to like step back and say, no, I, I really got to like beef up my political economic analysis. Right. I have studied my math and learned my lessons. I have gone to Egypt. I've gotten my blackness on. Right. And black folks still ain't free. Right. So clearly, but, but there's I, something right. else going on. Right. But the other thing I'll say about it is that not only as, as a sort of preparatory phase for a deeper engagement with these questions, but also as an expression of optimism and faith in the kind of integrity of black ideas. I can dig it. And the yeah. notion of blackness itself, like the revolutionary possibilities of blackness itself. Yeah. As a, just an article of faith. So I often find myself at a loss with talking to like graduate students, not like in class but off the cuff or you know, having a conversation with someone who's like real deep into black death. And I'm just like, I'm not really concerned so much with what That's white real. folks are saying That's and real. doing. As I am with all these possibilities that we have to like change stuff, and, and right. not to be—I mean, dude—romantic. Like, I'm looking at your, I'm looking at your ink, man. Like, you got Guillaume on your arm. Yeah, I I, that's what I was gonna get. I remember, if I got a tat from in high school. Oh, man. so I was—that's what it was gonna be. I was gonna get Sankofa. Yeah. Right? I was going to get the yeah, heart or the bird, right? But yeah. I remember thinking, like, that is an expression of black people's ability to save themselves just by figuring out how to be black. Right. right. Right? And I think stepping back, I can say, like, there's remarkable limits to that. Yeah. But there is something to be said for, like, the hopefulness of yeah. the endeavor. I mean, I became a historian because I honestly believe that if black people knew their history, they could get free. Right. Period. Yeah. Right? Isn't that why we all? I've been talking this whole time. I've been thinking that I haven't ever conceptualized in this way, but how coming of age in the 90s and early 2000s, how nihilistic of a time that was. Whereas the entire course of this conversation seemed to be optimism. And 
a faith in something. Meanwhile, and as a cultural reference point, hip hop. Meanwhile, right. and using that, like it was bad boy. Right. You know, uh, then that transition to Cash Money and Rough Riders, right. right? Which always had a bent of obviously capitalism, but it's just get money, fuck everything, else, right? Right? Like fatalism uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, just fatalism because at the end of the day, what else is there? Right. But right. there's right. always a com- but there's always a conversation within Black America, right? Yeah. You know, and so like PRT is hitting back. They're like, but I remember y'all the first year. The first year I got to, to college. Get yeah, yeah, so yeah, I got right? to college in '93, and that 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 song was a great song. Life's a bitch, and then you die. That's oh, why yeah, we get yeah, hot. Yeah. But that was the hottest song. And so, I, like in Drew mm-hmm. Hall and Howard, it was it was echoing the hallways. But I never, I didn't understand it because it was. It did have that kind of, well, fuck it, you know. Yeah. And that and that's not what we yeah. had listened to. That's not what got me to. To Howard, it's embarrassing how hopeful. <laughs> you know, I mean, we stayed up all night, freshman year, Drew Hall at Howard, debating, debating, debating how debating, we get free, debating, yeah. you know, debating how we get free. Go to sleep, wake up, on the way to the calf, we're doing it again. Still, I still regret not going to Howard for that. I know I didn't get that when I went where I went. Right, that was a moment when like. You wanted to be at an HBCU because the HBCU was where it at. Whether it was a Luke party right. or like Khalid Muhammad was on campus, yeah. it was at an HBCU, right? And like you knew that there was like bull sessions in the dorms where like cats were like, "How do we get free?" Yeah. Yeah. Right? And you know, I, and I, I think another side of it is that, that we forget is that there's a duality in the hegemonic sets of ideas that come out of the Nation of Islam, right? You know, the Nation of Islam is both at, at the very same time saying to black people, and we're and we're repeating it back to them, right? We are the source of our emancipation. Right. Niggas ain't shit. I need, need to get with Elijah Muhammad right. to get right. So it's literally at the very same time you can come out your mouth. You know, <laughs> you know, like like the black man is God, arm, leg, leg, arm, head, right? Yeah. And the black man ain't shit. Ain't shit. He's eating right. pork and trying yeah, to trying to right, thinking man. about white women, right? And right. That's yeah. from the same source. That's right. Right. So there's in the a same sch- breath. There's a schizophrenia yeah. of black politics in the early '90s, right? That's true. That's and and the way the nation works, it we have to remember that you have to think of the nation's teaching as the progress of a sermon, right? Y'all niggas ain't shit. Right. Let me tell you how you become not right. shit. Right. Which right? perfectly maps the trajectory of. Malcolm's autobiography. Yes. 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 Brother, you're out here eating this swine. That's right. You're out here chasing these white women. Right. But Elijah Muhammad yeah. yes. has the way yes. for you to get right. Redemption. Yes. I mean, Farrakhan's not doing nothing new, right? right. No. I no. mean, Farrakhan is bringing back a set of ideas that were really had their heyday in the 60s. Yeah. But it's like, it's also like, you know, this is... Somebody should write a book about that. (laughs) (laughs) Anybody want to give me money? (laughs) But no, it's like the. It's also like how the uh, Baptist minister comes to the ministry. Like, you know, oh, I was out there, I was living foul. Right. I was drunk. Yeah. In this drunken stupor. And the Lord came to me. And now I'm they, telling you, right? And so it just maps onto this cultural well, trope that's right. nicely, yeah. But yeah. it has this political flavor to it that was that shit was a. Yeah, I remember me reading. So in high school, I read one book, Ice and Men. I was like, I can't get out of reading this book. 
so I have to like, <laughs> finally read. This cat said I heard one. <laughs> I did. And it changed my life. I can bullshit my way through this. But no, I, I like I did a research paper where I just looked at the title and the abstracts, and it just made up shit and got advice. But no, it was like freshman year, so HBCU, Central State in Ohio, mm-hmm. and. You know, it was like the first quarter, there's these cats on the basketball team, they'd be in class, and they would just come at you like, how do you not know this? This is your history. This mm. is your people. Mm. You know, wow. and then it was all pressure. Yeah, yeah, but the question, like the first week, the question was, brother, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Kansas City. No, brother. Where, where are you, you from? from? Where are you really from? Right. And you don't like, say Africa, you messing up. <laughs> yeah. messing up. I'm trying to think like, is this Mark No Kids? Is that so Parkway? It's like, is that in the cross? Like, is that in Lagos? Like, respect the context, yeah. brother. Yeah, you didn't say Africa, you were, you were you played mentally yourself. dead. Right. <laughs> and so after like a whole quarter of this, and just being like, hey, yeah, and the clown like me would be like, no, Connecticut. Like, really, Connecticut. Like, I am this light skin for a reason, right? And they'd be like, no, brother, Africa. Uh, you still got Africa in your blood. Nubia. Can't get out of that. But no, so I was like, all right. This cat is in my class again. <laughs> hey, that was a, I, was a, I was a political science student. But so this is a wild thing. Like, I went, like, in high school, it was like a Malcolm X moment. Yeah. So I was like, the teacher was saying, what are your career aspirations? So I was like, you know, I had thought about being a lawyer, but I also like to cook. So I don't know if I want to go to school to be a lawyer or to be a chef. And she straight up said, 11th grade, well, you know, it's really going to be really hard for a black person to be a lawyer and people won't think you're that good. So you won't get many clients, but black people are really good cooks. So you should go into hotel and restaurant management. I was like, sounds like good advice. I was 16 years old. Like, so I go enroll and I remember going to advising hours. So this is a white woman in high school. And it was this like little old white woman in Central State, political science professor. She was like, why are you in hotel and restaurant management? I told her, she was like, you can't listen to white people. Just, <laughs> She's like, where are you from? <laughs> Africa, man. <isn't> it? <laughs> She's like, I go to Africa, Connecticut, but you're from the <laughs> But no, she changed my major right on the spot to political science. Wow. And so second quarter, this cat was in my class again. I was like, man, fuck this. I'm going to buy the autobiography. I'm reading this book. And I got it. I was like, this is <laughs> this is not a mice and men. A mice and men. <laughs> man, so I'm reading it, and I'm like embarrassed that I haven't read it, so I'm reading it when everybody's outside. Right. And I get to that spot, yeah. and I was like, you gotta be kidding me. Right, right. This right. is like a practice. Yeah. That's right. Man, yeah. I was, and then I was like, I did this deep, deep dive to the nation. Right. Yep. At that point, I was like, Elijah Muhammad. Yep. And we can't forget one important thing about the 90s, which does not exist in the same way today, and that's the international context. South Africa's marching toward democratic governance, right? right? MPLA is victorious in Angola, right? right? 
Cuba is dealing with AIDS in a way that the United States is not. That's right. The illiteracy rates in Cuba are lower than the United States as far as we can tell from stats, right? Right. I mean, there's a way in which the projects of the 60s, the yeah. revolutionary nationalist projects of the 60s are showing fruit in the 90s in a way that they're not today. We're dealing with all this stuff that's coming out of the nation in particular, but also the Jesse Jackson campaign, you know, right. the Free South Africa movement. And we're watching Sankofa on Broadway, right? My first Broadway play is Sankofa. Right. It's not Cats, it's Sankofa, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? That moment when I go see that play, I said, I'm going to fucking South Africa as soon as I can. And in 1995, I'm still in college, I go to South Africa. Right. And I meet Dumisani Dlamini, right? Yeah. The, the second star in Sankofa behind the lead, right? Yeah. And I'm like, I want to understand how I get free based on what y'all are doing. So there's a series of moments in the post-colonial era. I would say one of them is around the early to mid-1970s, including the initial wave of successful struggles in Southern Africa. Obviously the Vietnam War. That appear to be moments of real third world mobilization in a way that appears to hold the promise for a new day. So, I mean, no, there's a narrative about the 1970s, it's declining disillusionment. There's a narrative about the 80s of retrenchment. And even the 90s, as the end of history, if you sort of dig into those decades, there are periods of time that are really buoyant periods. And the, the 90s is the end of history is only for white people in right. Francis Fukuyama. Yeah, we never right? thought it was like, the end Like, it is not no, for us. Right. I mean, if you think about it, like, you know, Nelson Mandela does his trip around the world. Right? Like, he comes to Howard. That's right. Right? Like, I see him at Howard. Yep. Right? He then goes to London. Right. And he mobilizes against the murder of a guy named Stephen Lawrence yep. by five racist youth. Right. Which literally is a fulcrum right. in race relations in Great Britain in the early 90s. Right. I mean, you know, like, that moment for us is a turning point. Like, yep. that moment is, is an opening up of a new moment. That's right. And... You can talk about it as the end of history. You can focus on the Soviet Union, but that's for white folks, man. I mean, don't get me wrong. Right. Like, I think there's the, the <laughs> forecast of a very dark moment in right. the fall of the Soviet Union because right. all of a sudden these revolutionary nationalist movements don't have a state sponsor. Right. But in the early 90s, it's not totally apparent that that's how it's going to shake out. That's right. Because we're flush with victories. That's right. And we don't know, that, for instance, that like, you know, the folks in Angola are going to turn into a kleptocratic family. Right. Right. We don't know that like, you know, Fidel is doing some funky shit, or right. at least we don't want to admit it. Right? right. There's a way in which we sort of look at it as like, you know, we need to get like them. We need but to these keep are years in which the nation is closely linked to Gaddafi. Yep. You know, yep. I mean, like... They so got that huge loan. That's right. That's right. That's right, you know. And, and I remember struggling over how to interpret who Gaddafi was based on yeah. that loan. Yeah. Because I was like, he's this to us, but I'm hearing bad things about who he is to folks in Libya. That's right. Right? Right. So I, I sort of took it as a wash, right? right? You know, same thing with Fidel, sure. right? I mean, there's people who are like, Fidel is like this at home, but like, he's Fidel to us. Yeah. Right? Like, he's the dude that was on my father's dorm room wall. Right. He's the dude that was sending soldiers to Angola, right? Like, right. he's the dude that's training doctors from Mississippi. Yeah. Right? And so it was like, you just sort of like zeroed it out. It took me a while to get to the point where, like, my heroes didn't have, no, not like my heroes, my figures that 
I revere or the figures that I understand to be deeply valuable and powerful examples and I can draw from no longer had to be perfect or pure. They could be deeply complicated, deeply contradictory, mm. and I could engage deeply in a critique of the contradictions and the shortcomings and the violence, etc. and at the same time, find hope and possibilities in what they actually contribute. Now, how old were you when that happened? Because I couldn't that was last I week, couldn't do right? that. Because <laughs> I, I couldn't do that in undergrad. That was early this morning. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I couldn't I mean, do that That's real talk, though. I couldn't do that in undergrad. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. no. Oh, no. That's not how an undergrad which is why, works, but see, right? But maybe that's what we're talking. Maybe this is why we, you know, I mean, what are we doing? We're sitting here valorizing this period in our late youth or early adulthood, which was rife with... What we would now recognize as mythology. But every period is rife with mythology, right? Yeah, I mean, right. fucking Obama election is rife with mythology. Yeah, you're right. Right? right? Like, yeah. we always get yeah, caught yeah, up yeah. in the possibilities of the moment. Yeah. The question is whether or not you can make something of them. That's right. And whether uh, they're mobilizing or they're demobilizing or immobilizing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, I still don't know what Afro-pessimism means. <laughs> but I don't feel like Afro-pessimism would have resonated in the 90s. Yeah. No. No, there was too much possibility. Yeah. There was too much possibility. The other thing I'll say, man, is so when I was at Dartmouth, Trayvon got killed. And I never would have expected the kind of response that we saw from the black students. And to some extent, this might be a function, perhaps, of the demographics of black students at that particular institution. But the truth is that we had black prep school kids and we had, you know, working class kids. But man, we had like a mass meeting Kids were crying and falling out, not yep. just because they were scared and outraged. Unfulfilled expectations. But also because it was totally unexpected, man. And you know what they felt? Even more so, I mean, at least in terms of what they expressed, than outrage, they felt betrayal. Yes. Yes. Betrayal from the system, but also betrayal from their parents. Yes. Any authority that sold them what Malcolm would have called wolf tickets. Mm-hmm. But that's a proper function of youth. I mean, that, that is a proper function of youth, right? Like, youth say, this is how it's supposed to be. Why isn't the world like it? And we, we had come to the terms with the fact that, like, you can't trust white folks. Right. Like, seeing Rodney King, it was jarring because you had never seen something like that captured. But it wasn't surprising. I was not surprised by it. No. Not at all. And I remember, like, having conversations into high school before going to college where me and friends and cousins are just like we can't do anything about all this shit that happened to us getting stopped at random harassed coming from a house party being pulled out of a car and the whole car being turned looking for something that wasn't there but that's the important generational change right like we had accommodated ourselves to like that's how crazy these motherfuckers are right and our students were like Fuck that. Obama's president. Yeah, right. right. Right? Like, how dare this still happen? Y'all already did that. There's a way in which that progress narrative that we critique oh, yeah. Nobody, as, as, as an ideological function, everybody still works yeah, on that, I don't right? feel like we said, look, maybe this is totally revisionist. Maybe we said, it's 1996. How could this happen? But I don't remember saying that. I don't remember that narrative. Of pro- I mean, of course, look, we're a post-civil rights generation. Of course, we had our narrative of progress. 
But look, we had Yusuf Hawkins, we had Amadou Giallo. But we did it in a different way, which is that we said, oh shit, we have to go back into the streets. Right. Because white folks are still tripping. So I don't think that our surprise was about the violence perpetrated against us. I think that we simply said in response to that persistence of violence, we got to get back to what our parents were doing. Whereas for them, it was like there was a feeling that the oh, violence was over. Right. right? There's a feeling that we yeah. had overcome. That was the narrative. And so, and so the, yeah. the shock of not having right. overcome pushes them towards a very militant position, even though it's focused primarily on culture. I didn't see militancy. I just saw a crisis initially, man. Yeah, I, fair well, enough. This makes me, so this makes me wonder about, like, after the pill, even people who don't really know what they're talking about with Afro-pessimism, they just use the language and the rhetoric of it. So this sense that this is just how it is, you get harassed by the police. Right. I'm shocked, but I'm not surprised that we finally caught the police beating somebody right. on tape right. Rodney King. Right. But in a way, everything we were talking about earlier about all this stuff out of hip hop and we're going to look to blackness. We're going to look to something else internally to try and solve. Like, we have the ability to solve these problems. In a way, we, we didn't get consumed and disarmed by the things that happened. And I wonder if now, because maybe they have this sense, oh, it's a black president, we've heard all these stories, but it seems to be different, and then Trayvon happened. Mm -hmm. Michael Brown, all this other stuff that they begin to hear about. And it's like, well, this isn't what it was supposed to be. But they, they don't have that kind of resource to draw on right. that we were getting from all these different sources. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. To. So they felt adrift. There was no recourse. There was nothing to fall back on. Right. Which, right? which in and of itself was a calculated political strategy. Post-racialism. Yeah. The effort to demobilize. Yeah. In order to integrate. Right. In the hopes that it could work, right. was a chosen political strategy rooted really in the political aspirations of people like Arthur Davis, Adrian Fenty, Barack Obama, yeah. believing that they could become governors and presidents. Right. Right? And senators, Cory Booker. Yep. Right? That's right. And taking their personal ambitions and sandwiching them, in the, at least in their minds, with the well being and the aspirations of the larger black community. And of course, when all that shook out, like they had new positions in most cases and black folks still didn't have shit, right? And, and so I think part of it is that too, right? It's not just the persistence of inequality, it's also the demobilization of black protest organizations and strategies in the face of persistent white hostility. And so it's not just like, okay, you know, white folks are still tripping, it's like, White folks are still tripping and like the NAACP has shrunk. That's right. Right? White folks are still yeah. tripping and we don't That's even right. have a good language for figuring no, out no, how no. that works. No. And so I think they felt themselves naked. That's right. In a moment where they were supposed to be ascending. Reft. That's right. I don't know if this is optimistic or being overly romantic or what, but I feel like even out of that and that sense of indignation that things aren't as they should be, we got a lot of stuff that I don't think we could have imagined. Right. generation ago right. in like so we're going to have a mass organization where there are no leaders right. and right. we're going to do the I mean like 
the highway shut. That's the stuff that Snick talked about. Yeah, in core, in core. That's right. We're gonna we're gonna shut down the airport runway. So we're gonna shut down. Has anybody, what, try, has anybody tried to do that shit? That shit's scary. Right. That is what the 63 March on Washington was supposed to be no. for a lot of people. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, we're going to just shut it down. We're going to shut down DC. 